This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Welcome to DSC's Untamed Heritage, the unique blend of hunting, conservation, and the outdoor lifestyle. Delivered in an entertaining and informative fashion as only a veteran outdoorsman can do. DSC's Untamed Heritage is brought to you by... DSC, Dallas Safari Club, conservation, education, and hunter advocacy. Hornady, accurate, deadly, dependable. Trigicon, brilliant aiming solutions. Ruger, rugged, reliable firearms. Burnham Brothers Game Calls, calling as calls made. Double Nickel Taxidermy, where hunting memories are preserved. Now, here's your host, Larry Wysoon. Middle of February... I want to wish everybody a happy Valentine's Day. But more importantly, I want to thank everybody who has been involved with the DSC virtual event and auction. You know, there's still time. There, This auction is going to run through this coming Saturday, through the 13th, and then also into the 14th. But through the 13th, uh, there's still opportunities to go online since we're not going to be able to be there in person. And you can place your bid there on, on several items still remaining that are just absolutely fantastic. The Friday and Saturday nights are some of the best items that we have, and you can do that by going to dsc.onlinehuntingauctions.com, or you can also go to the big game site, the B-I-G-G-A-M-E dot O-R-G, and it'll direct you there as well, too, if you haven't already signed up. And then I want to remind you, too, there's something over 150 silent auction items, and I don't think those are going to be fully sold out until uh, until Sunday afternoon. So there's still a lot of opportunities there to, to bid on absolutely unbelievable hunting, fishing, equipment, furs, diamonds, all those really great things that... Uh, and remember, too, your support of DSC is so very important in terms of conservation, wildlife conservation, not only here in North America, but across the, the across the world, too. We, we spend a lot of time here in North America through the DSCF 
which is the DSC Foundation, kind of the granting arm of DSC, providing grants that are totally vetted by the, the top wildlife officials in the country. And people have been involved in terms of wildlife biologists and, and who have been truly involved in wildlife management and wildlife research these many years to determine what those best projects are. And you can learn more about the DSC Foundation by going to dscf.org and uh, look forward to y'all doing that. But really want to say thank you for all those folks to say thank you, I should say, to all those folks who've, who've contributed the to making this virtual event truly successful, particularly the those who provided hunts and who provided items for the sale, for the auctions, and also those of the, uh, you know, when you get right down to it, one of the only things that uh, I really miss that, <laughs> I really miss us having this because it's an opportunity to see so many people, but I want to tell you too, you can go to uh, the DSC biggame.org and it will direct you to the site where you can go to all the different outfitters, all the different vendors who make up the DSC convention every year. So please do so. There's, Please show your support and please tell them thank you for being there as well too. Now with all that said, we're into February and February to me is a most interesting month in, in so many different ways and so many different respects. Among those is that this is an absolutely fantastic time to go hunt predators and hogs. Uh, I don't care where you live, there are coyotes there. And when it comes to wild hogs, <laughs> to me, there are two types of habitat in North America. Them what's got wild hogs and them what's going to have them before too very long. Coming to your hometown very, very in the next who tell who knows in the next few weeks maybe and if not that certainly within the next year the wild hog populations are expanding everywhere and great opportunities not only as far as hunting is concerned but also in terms of of the taking of those animals particularly the younger ones the maybe what they call shoats that are up to about oh 40 50 60 even 100 pounds those are absolutely fantastic to eat as well too so Time to get out, and if you, you live in a different state where they don't have hogs yet, you know, there's a lot of opportunities where I live here in Texas. There are several ways to, to learn. You can Google wild hog hunting in Texas, and i got a feeling you'll come up with all kinds of places and opportunities to do so. In my personal instance, I grew up in an area out west of Houston, and when I was growing up, I always wanted to hunt wild hogs. We didn't have them there then. And, now, guess what? We do, and they're there in great abundance to the point of being a nuisance in a lot of different areas. But to me, they're also an absolute uh, blessing in that it's something for me to hunt this time of the year, and it's something for me to put food on the table for my family. I just leased a little bit of country, and, and where I live, places are not real big. I spent a lot of time in South Texas, North Texas, and West Texas where Average land ownership was well over a thousand acres, and ranches of twenty-five to thirty thousand acres or larger were not that uncommon. But the area that I live now, and the area that I grew up in, if you've got one hundred and fifty, two hundred acres, it's a pretty fair chunk of country. Well, thankfully, through the 
grace with some neighbors that I kind of spent time around when I was a youngster helping them work cattle and and hauling in crops and hauling hay and all those other things that we used to do when I was growing up out in the country. I'm able to lease an additional 250 acres next to mine. It's mostly wooded. It's mostly uh, various piece of oaks, species of oaks rather, and such in terms of both live oak and red oaks and white oaks. There's a, a fair amount of what we call cedar, kind of a juniper type of tree that grows relatively tall in our area and also lots of uh, berry vines and yopon which is a kind of a holly i'm told it's a great brow species lots of briars uh persimmons and so one of the things that i'm doing right now as i'm getting ready for this coming year is number one i'm trying to explore those places and spend a lot of time walking and determining where the deer trails are and and where i may want to set up for a deer blind a little bit later on and and uh hunting some hogs and and doing those kind of things but i'm also looking for specific trees that I want to fertilize. It may be a persimmon tree. It may be an oak tree in the middle of a, a bunch of oak trees. One of the things I learned a long time ago is that uh, certain native species of plants respond very well to fertilization. Greenbrier is one of those, or some people call it smilax. I've heard friends call it green barbed wire as well, too. But uh, you can, if you find little patches of it, the, the easiest thing to do is just to go buy a sack or two of, of triple 13 from the local feed and seed dealer or, or nursery. Most places like that sells it, sells fertilizer. You can buy that. It's relatively inexpensive. And then what I do is, uh, I'll, right now, this, this time of the year in, in February, I am going to find select trees that I want to use kind of as a natural food plot, if you will. By fertilizing these trees, and I'll do two or three of them in a specific area, there's something within deer, squirrels, that just seem to be able to tell what is the most nutritious of any particular species of plant in that area. And, and I'm told that uh, fertilizing oak trees and persimmon trees that we have, particularly throughout much of the South and even the, the Midwest, it makes those fruits or they're masked, if it's soft mass like uh, persimmon or hard mass kind of like acorns, it makes those fruits sweeter. And in terms of, of uh, oak trees, it simply means that those acorns have less tannic acid in them. And so obviously it kind of makes them a little bit sweeter, I suppose. But right now is the time to fertilize those trees. And what I do is I go to the drip line. Now the drip line means the outermost branches where if you essentially made a, a covered all the leaves on top, all the limbs on top, it's where the, that water that hit the top of that plastic would fall to. To, uh, to the ground, that's the drip line. So what I'll do is I'll take a hoe or a shovel or, or some kind of a spade or whatever, and I'll dig a very narrow trench, really, all the way around the drip line of the tree, and then take that triple 13 and just kind of dribble a little bit all the way around that drip line and, and then kind of cover it up. And that tree, I promise you, when it produces mass, be it soft or hard mass, come the fall, 
those deer are going to know which one that is. I've, I've fertilized native grouse species, and I know a lot of people in the north, when you mention honeysuckle, they go, oh, my God, honeysuckle, it's horrible. But we had to have Japanese honeysuckle in, in a lot of our little areas, and it, too, is an evergreen, kind of like the Yopon holly is, and even the greenbrier. So those things are important during the late winter time. But what I'll do is I'll fertilize those patches. I'll find a specific area, if it's a large patch, that uh, I want to I wanna target because I'll have it set up to where maybe I've got a deer blind or a shooting lane that I can see down to because come fall, as that vegetation starts taking in the fertilizer, in, <clears throat> excuse me, and creating more forage, higher quality forage for the, the, the deer and the squirrels or whatever else partakes of it, rabbits, uh, they're going to come to that specific area. I've, I've literally watched deer walk through acorns piled up on the ground on white oaks and walk across them to go to a specific tree. So I know in years past, I've hunted some areas like in parts of Missouri and, and uh, some of the Midwest where you look up on kind of a slope, if you will, and that entire slope is nothing but white oaks. It's just literally covered up with white oaks. And you go, how in the world can I hunt that entire area? Well, if you go in there right now and start fertilizing, you know, specific trees, maybe three or four of them in one little group, uh, you'll create your own little natural food plot come this fall. Now, we're still in the winter in a lot of different areas throughout the Midwest, and one of the things I learned a long time ago from uh, Harold Knight with Knight and Hale Game Calls, they had some property in Tennessee, and Whenever it got to be to where it was cold and the ground was freezing and you'd have these little cracks formed in the ground to where they kind of shoved up against each other and swelled up and it would create a little little crack in the ground on the surface, what Harold would do is he would find whatever he thought was the best forage for the springtime and it could have been could be some kind of pea, it could be, or some kind of legume, I should say, like some of the clovers and, and peas. And he would simply just go in those areas where those cracks formed, where the ground was frozen, and he would dribble seeds in those areas. Now, that created, that crack created an area where that seed could fall into. Now, whenever that ground thaws out, guess what? It's almost as if you have planted that thing on purpose, like you have disturbed the soil and laid something on top of it and uh you know it's a great way to create little areas as far as uh uh really creating a good amount of forage variety is so very important when it comes to speaking of variety in, in terms of vegetation when it comes to wildlife uh different species like different plants like different seeds like different forage so to me it's an ideal way to kind of things that you can can do this this time of the year as we get into february one of the things that uh i like to do it too is pick up shed antlers uh i've noticed something over the years of working different ranches as a wildlife biologist that Quite often, some of the older mature bucks whose cast antlers I found in February and even into March and April, I uh, know that a lot of antlers are coming off throughout the Midwest and the North. And here in Texas, we generally carry antlers into almost about Easter, and, and then they start falling off. But uh, I love looking for shit antlers. I'll be out there on a place by my, totally by myself and 
I'm walking along and I'll spot a nice antler and I find myself taking off at a run to get to it. Like I've got to beat somebody else there before they get there. And, you know, I'll walk, run over and pick up that shit antler and kind of foolishly look around like, well, that wasn't very smart. You didn't need to do that. You need to run to it. There was nobody else out here to take that, get to that antler before you did. But uh, I've noticed over the years where before we had a lot of the GPS things that we have these days, I would carry around maps and I would put an X where I found a specifically interesting antler, a big antler. And over the years of then going back and hunting those same areas where I found big antlers, addressing white-tailed deer, not mule deer here, but uh, where I'd find a big white-tailed antler, and either when I was guiding or personal hunts, guess what? They're quite often, uh, we would shoot that buck that following year very close to that shit antler where it was found. And in some instances, I've, I've shot big deer, talking about older mature deer that, Maybe you're a little bit more secretive, maybe a little bit more uh, uh, less aggressive, I guess I should say, during the, the breeding season. We've shot deer within feet of where we found those shit antlers. So it's a good time to get out, and sheds are interesting. I love to look at sheds from one year to the next where you can see, and most of the time buck establishes some kind of pattern in terms of or style on his antlers. He, he pretty well stays that way. It can change a little bit, but generally not all that much. So sometimes you can see that same pick up that shed from the same deer year after year after year and you can kind of see how that that deer is progressing shed hunting too is it, it gives me a good idea as i mentioned where those deer were at a certain period of time and uh, generally they can be very close there now mule deer are totally different because a lot of times with mule deer particularly in the western states outside of the desert mule deer that we have in texas those deer have a tendency to be migratory and where you pick up a big shed mule deer antler in wyoming or colorado such as the ranches i used to manage in colorado i'd find big sheds on our property and those same bucks were not there until that my winter migration came out of uh, some of the areas of, of Wyoming. And so early in the season, when the mule deer season started, it really didn't do any good to hunt for the deer that she found sheds of because they may be 40, 50 miles north or south or east or west. So finding whitetail sheds and, and mule deer sheds is, is something totally different. But there is something that, that's somewhat similar in that... Uh, you can pick up a shed, and of course, if it's a little antler, talking about a little fork horn spike, you know, a little thin horn three, three then I call them horns, although I know they're antlers, but uh, a thin main beamed buck uh, shed that you find, if you look at, you know, it's probably off of a young deer. Now, as that deer gets into that three and say four year old age class, and that's generally when deer in South and north both start maturing and to some extent too same thing with mule deer if you pick that antler up and turn it upside down to where you look into where that pedicle attaches where that pedicle attachment area under the burr where it attaches to the to the skull if you'll compare that diameter or circumference whichever you wish to of uh, the pedicle attachment area to above the burr like on a three, four-year-old deer, they ought to be about the same size in, in uh, circumference, the pedicle attachment area and the uh, 
the uh, uh, the, the circumference of the of the of the beam right above the burr. Now, once that deer is a mature deer, and if he's on a good nutritional diet, he'll have a pretty good sized pedicle attachment area. But then, the circumference above the burr of that beam is every bit as big and generally should be bigger than what that pedicle attachment area. When you find those kind of deer, you know, it's probably going to be some four-year-olds are that way, but generally it's going to be a five, six or so year old deer, seven year old deer in certain instances when, uh, when they're larger beams as compared to the pedicle attachment area. Now, if that deer is kind of on a downhill slide, and I use that term loosely because of several reasons I'll tell you about in just a little bit, but generally, if that deer is what a lot of people consider post-mature, he'll have a big pedicle attachment area, and then just above the burr, the main beam will be somewhat smaller. It'll still be a good-sized antler, but uh, it could be a, a little bit smaller in terms of circumference comparing the pedicle attachment area to the beam. Now, I mentioned something about not almost always that being the case. In certain instances, I've had the opportunity to track wild deer. These are deer that, for whatever reason, had maybe a split area. They had a mark on their body. They had, uh, or in some instances, years ago, we used to tag whitetail fawns with a, a plastic tag so that we could have known age jaws and so that we could also follow that deer to some extent throughout the rest of his lifetime. And one of the things that I noticed on, on several of our places that we managed intensively and giving those deer an opportunity to get some age on them and even go into those, what a lot of people would almost consider post-mature, they were on a really good nutrition. What I noticed is that they would, you know, they kind of grow up in terms of antlers until they get about five or six and seven, and maybe at eight they'd go down a little bit, and maybe if they lived to be nine, they were kind of the same. And then all of a sudden, for whatever reason, when those deer hit that 10, 11, 12-year-old age class, their antlers were bigger than ever before, uh, considerably bigger. Uh, not all deer are going to be that way, but there's a, there are a few of them that uh, really grow some unbelievably huge antlers, like at 10, 11, even 12 years of age, if they're on a good nutritional level. Seem like at that point they're no longer chasing. They don't get run down from the rut, so they can put whatever they're not using simply for maintenance into antler development. That said, too, if you <coughs> excuse me, if you're ever around an area or a place where you can see a lots of big whitetail antlers, from talking about real world whitetail, not out of somebody's pen or or anything like that, but look at those antlers. And look at the number of small points some of them had, the small tines, maybe little kicker points here and there. There are some deer that produce just enough testosterone to really put them through the antler growth cycle. But they don't really chase does. They, not to say they may not breed a doe, but uh, they don't really chase does. So they don't actively run down physically. Uh, when the rut's over with, they're in great shape body-wise. And they haven't, you know, they haven't, they haven't exposed themselves. Those kind of deer, too, generally are the ones that are more nocturnal. They don't get seen any time during the hunting season with that lower testosterone level. 
Well, the testosterone level drops and the antlers come off, but that buck's in absolutely fantastic shape. The next year he comes back and he's every bit as big and, and much bigger. And how you can tell some of these deer is by the small points that they have growing off the main beam or coming off the, the around the basal area somewhere or split tines or something like that and where they're not broken. That tells you that, number one, they probably didn't rub their antlers a whole lot because that's when most tines are broken is when they're rubbing real hard as they get trying to prepare for the rut. And then some of them are broken, too, when when they're fighting. But if if that antler is intact and it's got a bunch of little points around the base, if he'd done a whole lot of rubbing, he'd have broken those off. If he's got split tines and they're still totally intact, chances are he didn't do a whole lot of fighting because those are the tines that have a tendency to break maybe quicker than some of the rest of them. So interesting things about white-tailed deer, and in those particular bucks that are of that nature of not producing a tremendous amount of testosterone during the rut, those are the ones whose shed antlers or cast antlers that you find that there's probably a pretty good chance if you'll hunt that area real tight because they have a, seem like a restricted home range as well too. And they're so intimately knowledgeable of that area. So if you can get in there this time of the year and find one of those shed antlers like that, that's an area that you really want to try to go back to come this fall. And and my suggestion is to get in there as, as early as you can. To me, the best time to kill a really big buck that you know about is the first legal opportunity. Now, I'm not a bow hunter. Uh, I love bow hunters and I love teasing bow hunters. But bow hunters actually have an advantage when it comes to shooting big bucks because they can get into those areas to hunt deer before those bucks really start even thinking about getting in the rut. They can spend their summertime, meaning the hunters, scouting these areas, hopefully from a distance or even uh, close up and really patterning these deer so that when that first of the bow season days open, those deer are still in those late summer patterns. And if you know what you're doing, you can really kind of take advantage of that situation. most of you know that I do a fair amount of things with Texas Raised Hunting Products, and they have a, a product called Scent Guardian that uh, I've just been totally enthralled with because, to me, it, it's so far it's the only product I've ever seen that really does take your scent away, and it does seem to have some sort of an EMF effect, well, too, to to block that electrical impulse that we as as hunters or humans put out and. I base that on experience that I've had of the deer not paying me the slightest bit of attention, being downwind, and even with the slightest little bit of movement that I was doing, deer just didn't even pay attention, which goes back to uh, a pronghorn antelope hunt that I had uh, with wildlife systems back in South Texas, I'm sorry, Western Texas, uh, back in October of, of 2020. Sprayed my clothes, sprayed sprayed my boots, my gloves, my gun, my hat, all those kind of things before I went out and uh, spotted a pronghorn antelope out there at about 500 yards and put a stalk on this animal moving in the bald opening right straight toward him and, and he never really looked at me as I was coming his way. He kind of looked past me, He'd spot something else off in the distance and really stare at it and really concentrate on it. But I just kept moving real slow. Had uh, Dave Fulson, who is with uh, one of the co-hosts of uh, uh, Trigicon's World of Sports Field on the Outdoor Channel. Dave was filming it. I was that hunt and I was doing an episode for them. And 
he he stopped at about oh about two hundred yards or so and sat down and set the camera up and I just kept moving real slow. Finally, when I quit moving toward the antelope, he was thirteen steps away and. He still acted as if he did not see me. He would look at something else, but he never did look at my way. And I thought, wait, wait a minute here. I finally turned around and walked back because it wasn't uh, uh pronghorn I was interested in taking, although he was a really good one. I just had to be looking for another specific buck on that hunt. But that deer, I'm sorry, that antelope paid me no attention at all. So since that time, I've tried the same thing with the white-tailed deer and even in areas that are heavily hunted and, and uh, kind of seeing the same results. So if, you, if you're not using that, it's something you might consider using. Um, I know it sure made a difference as far as, as I'm concerned. And you can go to TexasRaisedHuntingProducts.com and, and learn a whole lot more about that and some of the other products that they have as well, too. February 2 is, to me, an ideal time to start setting up new guns. I've gotten... Uh, uh, couple of Ruger number ones that uh, just now I'm putting Trigicon scopes on and I'll be headed out to my range uh, that I have on my little place. Uh, only not that far from my home anymore now, thankfully. It's only about 26 miles from my house to my range. And uh, I'm going to be spending a fair amount of time shooting. I know ammo is getting a little tougher to find and maybe instead of going out and shooting 50 to 100 rounds a day, I'm going to selectively shoot maybe five or six rounds a day and and uh, set up targets at varying distances. My range, I can easily go out to 400 yards in one direction and actually go out to about 800 in another. And, but for the most part, I'll do the long range shooting, if you will, simply to gain confidence in my combination of, of uh, whatever rifle, Trigicon scope and Hornady ammo that I'm shooting so that if I can hit a milk jug or a eight inch gong at say 700 yards i should then know that i should be capable of precisely placing a bullet at a hundred yards which my goal is always to get as absolutely close as i possibly can in a hunting situation now in a shooting situation yeah i like shooting long range i, I love shooting at gongs i love shooting at milk jugs uh, clay pigeons, all those kind of things. I like to see things happen when I shoot. I love tight groups. I'll start with that, and then I'll start shooting at long range. But to me, when it comes to hunting, uh, it's just my opinion. If somebody wants to shoot long range or hunt long range, if that's something you really want to do and you're proficient at it, but that's the key. Be proficient at it. And if you're going to shoot long range, it's a good idea to have somebody there with you to spot for you to see where that bullet actually hit in the animal and how that animal reacts. And then if you shoot a long range, I can tell you there are times I've shot a deer across a canyon at less than 200 yards and then walked over there by myself to where I thought that deer was and spend half a day looking for a deer that only took a few steps before it went down. So if you're going to shoot those long ranges at, at animals, I very strongly recommend that you become very proficient with your with your firearm. Know how to read the wind. Wind can make a tremendous amount of difference. But then when you shoot that animal across the canyon at 500 yards and it's not in the bald opening where you can see them from the time that it goes down, 
have somebody there with you to direct you to where that animal was last seen or where that animal was down. And uh, if you're going to shoot an animal at those distances, you really need somebody there to help you direct you directly to where that animal went down. Uh, because last thing on earth we want to do is to, of course, wound an animal and uh, all, which can happen at those long ranges if you're not proficient. So. Uh, particularly in terms of reading wind or learning distances and that kind of thing. But have somebody there to direct you exactly where that animal was last seen and, and recover that animal so you can put his antlers on the wall and take that meat or horns on the wall and take your meat home and enjoy it with your family. I mentioned hog hunting a little bit earlier. Uh, hog hunting has become so popular in so many different ways. and There are so many different ways to hunt, whether you shoot them at night with thermals, or whether you spot and stalk, whether you bait, whether you call, however you attract hogs or however you get to hogs, they really are good to eat. And the, the main thing you have to remember, just to get them up above, uh, say, 160 or, or 180 in terms of meat temperature, and you know, if there was anything there, and in most instances, there there's nothing there to be concerned about in wild hogs. But if there were, that's going to kill whatever parasite, uh, bacteria, whatever, virus or whatever that you think that wild hog may be carrying. And Luke Clayton and I have, have done a fair amount of hog hunting together. Now Luke knows to me as much and more about hunting wild hogs and wild hogs as anybody I've ever met. And I've, I've looked a lot to find somebody that was kind of like him. And, and uh, Luke did a book some time ago called Kill the Grill. Now this whole thing is about hunting wild hogs and preparing wild hogs in terms of food for your meals. Uh, and you can get that book and I highly recommend you do so if you enjoy hog hunting or think you might want to hog hunt. And you can do that by going to uh, Catfish Radio, C-A-T-F-I-S-H-R-A-D-I-O dot O-R-G. And uh, you can order that book there of Luke's through PayPal, and I suspect you can probably get it on Amazon and a bunch of other places as well, too. But if you order it directly from Luke, you know you're going to get it, and uh, you can probably even ask, it, ask him to, to sign it for you. Now, there's another reason or two for mentioning Luke, because Luke and I do a lot of things together. About 13 years ago, Luke started a radio show. And about a year later, he called me and he said, Larry, would you consider being on the radio show with me for a segment? And I said, absolutely, I'd be honored to. So for about the last, oh gosh, 12, 13, 12 years now, we are soon to be 13, I think. Uh, I've been doing a weekly radio segment with Luke called Campfire Talk with with. And initially it was Campfire Talk with Larry Wysoon, and now simply just Campfire Talk. Uh, and that is on a whole bunch of different radio stations throughout Texas, but you can also listen to them by going to catfishradio.org uh, almost any time that you want to. Luke and I have kind of gotten to be where we do several things together. Just uh, this past week, we started doing a blog, uh, a regular weekly blog, if you will, for Sporting Classics Daily. Now, 
Sporting Classics Daily is just that. Now there, you, you can Google it and get signed up for nothing. And every week, Luke and I are going to be doing a, a, about a 10 to 15 minute podcast, probably more 10 minute than anything else. And uh, we're going to talk about a wide variety of topics on that thing. Everything from hunting to fishing to uh to books, to equipment, to things having to do with the outdoor lifestyle, kind of what I'm doing here. And I really would appreciate y'all kind of having a listen to that particular podcast as well, too. You can go, like I said, you can find it on, uh, there are a lot of different ways to find it, but uh, Sporting Classics Daily, it looks like it's going to probably be a Thursday morning release. And if you'll notice, uh, this particular podcast, we're changing the release on it as well, too. Uh, in the past, we were trying to release it on Mondays, and now it is going to be released on on Friday mornings. And uh, you can expect to, uh, to 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 see it then and have a chance to listen to it over the weekend. And two, we've taken the podcast. Uh, we're going to be taking the podcast to also in the very near future to uh, uh, CarbonTV.com. Uh, I've been in touch with Miss Julian. They're adding a podcast section to Carbon TV where you can see some of the things that I've done there on Trailing the Hunter's Moon as well, too. And, uh, real excited about that as they move forward with that. And then uh, uh, also Luke and I and Jeff Rice do a very simplistic TV digital show, if you will, called A Sportsman's Life. And it too is a weekly. This is a really fun project. I've kind of essentially walked away from some of the old traditional TV shows, still done some things with, uh, uh, occasionally with Trailing the Hunter's Moon. That'll be around for a long time in a digital format. And then this past year, I did some shows with Trigicon's World of Sports and Field. It's produced by Safari Classics. And I'll be in those probably about four or five episodes, maybe six episodes occasionally uh, on uh, the outdoor channel of, of Sports and Field uh, TV show. The big news coming up is that when I started this podcast, it started out as Untamed Heritage, DSC's Untamed Heritage, and envisioned with a lot of different people and, and graciously the, the people who helped sponsor this podcast. We talked about a name change and I kicked around a whole lot of different ideas and and several people suggested, said, Larry, most of the things you do are kind of like sitting around a campfire. Now, whether it's you by yourself or you with a guest, you have the tendency to make it almost sound like you're sitting around a campfire and and telling stories or, or doing an interview with somebody. And that's, you know, really kind of right. To me, I love campfires. Campfires seem to settle people down a little bit after a long day, particularly. And, and these days we have some long days and, and it's kind of a soothing effect of sitting around that campfire and it kind of opens the mind and kind of loosens the tongue a little bit as well sometimes too. So in the future, as we move forward here in the next week or two, maybe the next two or three episodes, you'll see a name change from DSC's Untamed Heritage to DSC's Campfires with Larry Weisson. And we'll try to keep it in that vein, kind of like we're sitting around telling stories and all those kind of good things. Now, social media is is changing all the time. And, and basically, I have two two sites that you can go to to send me a message and and one of them is on uh, Instagram it's it's at Larry Weissoon Outdoors and on Facebook I have a personal page but also have uh, 
another one called Larry Wassoon Outdoors. And if you have any comments or any questions, you can either go to the Instagram site or the 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 Facebook site, and you can get in touch with me there and have a a, a lady that handles those for me when I'm not around. Because a lot of times on the I'm on the road for days on end with a lot of different things going on, and and even though uh, we're kind of restricted in into the distances we travel, I'm still on the road quite a bit. Uh, done hunts, done, you know, small speaking engagements. And then, of course, also whenever I have time, doing some fishing and, <clears throat> excuse me, filming with uh, Luke and, and Jeff for our, our Sportsman's Life kind of thing. So, but uh, yeah, please get in touch with me at, at one of those two sites. Let me know what you think about the podcast, what you think about, uh, or what you'd like to hear about. Uh, the fields are wide open and, and, uh, Got a bunch of different things planned here moving into the future where we'll talk a little bit more about things that you can be done in a very timely manner and maybe reviewing and, and telling stories about some of the hunts that some friends and I have been on that uh, <clears throat> were, to say the least, a little bit on the interesting side. Before we close this thing down, what I really would like to do is to remind you that there still is time uh, this week, this weekend, to go to dsc.onlinehuntingauctions.com. DSC is such an absolutely fantastic organization. It runs itself on a really a shoestring budget. But the work that they do and the worth that they do is immeasurable when it comes to wildlife conservation. So if you get a chance, please go do that. Thank you again for all your support. Thank you for listening to this particular podcast. And hopefully we'll hear from you on some of your thoughts and on this particular podcast and, and maybe some of the other things that I'm involved in right now. So look forward to catching up again, everybody, next week. Thank you again so very much for listening. DSC's Untamed Heritage is also brought to you by Texas Wildlife Association. Working for tomorrow's wildlife today. Texas raised hunting products, the scent gods. Kennetrek boots for the trail less traveled. Wildlife systems, serving hunters and landowners since 1987. Boyt, the finest in hunting gear. And Pyramid Air for all things air guns.